Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 11th, 2015. This is episode 1622 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got an interesting one for you today. We've never quite done anything like this. I have a guy named Ryan Bradley I'll be bringing on in just a bit to have a pretty extensive interview about uh, really kind of two different things. Um, Ryan basically was my duck sitter, right? My, my duck sitter, my farm sitter uh, for half of my recent vacation. He came here, took care of my birds, took care of my animals, took care of my property, took care of my dogs. And uh, he's going to talk about what that experience was like, what he learned from basically doing the nine-mile fa farm workload for about a week. And then he's going to talk about a business that he's working on setting up right now that is specifically designed to provide people to do that. For all of you guys with homesteads that aren't big enough to warrant having, you know, internships and having a, a, someone to take care of your property, whether you're a small farm like me or just a homestead, you, what you learn really quick, the homesteading life when you start especially adding animals is really enjoyable. It, it, it's really, really great. Um, but it's also the case that it's hard to leave. And when you leave, it has a tendency, Nick Ferguson and I were talking about this yesterday, you know, you rely on a family member or something, and they just don't listen. And stuff just goes wrong. And you end up set back a week. You leave a week, and you come back, and you're set back a month or two months. Or sometimes, with certain losses, an entire season is lost because of a week of improper care. And, and anyone that has animals or even just lots of plants that need looking after and care knows that when you go away, especially at certain times of the year, it's difficult. Ryan did a great job for me, and what he's, he's working on is setting up something where you can find someone to do this work for you. You know, right now if you want a dog sitter or something like that, they're pretty easy to find. But finding somebody that really can come in and take care of a small homestead from end to end for a week or two while you go on vacation, a little bit more difficult. And he's putting together a site to allow matchmaking for that. I think it's a fantastic idea. Uh, that site is uh, called farmsubs.com, I believe. And uh, we'll be talking about that and his experiences here in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing. 
when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you. And if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1622 because the episode is 1622. I have the Jamestown Massacre and the Sins of the Father. 
I, and I also have the first bottled water. It's wholly refreshing. And I have some notable events this year. Um, I'm going to read the notable events for you and then one of the two segments above them. Uh, New Year's is now January 1st. It used to be in March, right before Easter. So this is when January 1st became New Year's in 1622. The English Parliament is disbanded. King James is unhappy with his Parliament expecting freedoms for expecting freedom of speech for the Parliament. So the Parliament wanted to exercise their free speech, not even the people's free speech, so he threw them all out. Richelieu is made cardinal. This is the same cardinal who plays a prominent role in the fictional story of the Three Musketeers. And war, war, and more war. There are sieges, skirmishes, and outright battles in the Thirty Years' War and Eighty Years' War, more than I'd care to mention in detail. Let's read something else. War like the Jamestown Massacre and the Sins of the Father. Chief Powhatan passed away in 1618, leaving his, leaving his brother to lead the tribe. The new chief has never liked the Jamestown settlers. The Virginia Company had been bleeding money for years, but with the new cash crop of tobacco, they finally stand a chance of making money. The Jamestown settlers had made an early agreement with the Indians, but there's a terrible misunderstanding. The Indians thought they'd agreed to the, an English trading post and a supporting town. The English thought they'd agreed to expansion of their tobacco plantations. Now the Indians will push the English back in their place. In the early morning, Indian warriors walk casually through the plantations surrounding Jamestown. In many cases, the settlers invite them for breakfast. Unarmed, the Indians pick up whatever weapon is handy. The attack is swift, brutal, and utterly merciless. Before the morning is over, more than 300 men, women, and children lay dead, many having no idea they were under attack before they breathed their last. The Powhatan tribe believes the attack is simple, fair play. The English settlers believe otherwise, but they can do very little to return the attack. The majority of the survivors are women and children. Uh, my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. In reading accounts of the Jamestown Massacre, I saw an attempt by some historians to forgive the Indians for the attack. I'm tired of the modern need to fix blame or exact apologies from people who had nothing to do with some ancient misdeed. I allow that there was misunderstanding before the mu massacre, but the misunderstanding was mostly the part of the English. The Indians seemed to understand perfectly. Their land was being taken by the English. The English saw a chance to make a settlement pay off by planting tobacco on every open plot of land. A few of the settlers were concerned for the welfare of the Indians, so returned for small kindness. One family warned by a concerned Indian before the attack. They warned Jamestown in turn, but the outlying areas never got the timely warning. The English took the attack as a moral justification for uh, justification to appropriate land. It was punishment for the atrocity, but right or wrong, it is beyond our power to forgive those misdeeds. The only people with that power, if they ever have such power, are the people who were injured. Those people are all dead. We don't punish the sons for the sins of the father, the son having enough difficulty accounting for his own sins today. I agree. I think that to use what happened in the 1600s as justification for anything today is preposterous. I'm, I'm tired of hearing about things that... No living human being ever saw happen. If no one alive ever saw it, it's far enough in the past that it's not any... It doesn't mean we don't study it because we do these history studies, but it's far enough in the past that you can't blame your life on it. Okay? Period. This historical guilt complex is bullshit. However, let me tell you this. Um... When I put myself in the position of the Indians, there would have been a whole lot more dead white men a whole lot faster if, if it was me. I want you to think about it this way. Let's say that right now uh, some group of people with technology more advanced than our own show up in our country and just stake out a claim and say, this is mine now. And we go, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We've been managing that land 
for a hundred generations. That's our community. We, that's our land. And they say, no, we, we want it now, and uh, we have guns, and we're going to take it, and that's just the way that it's going to be. And that initially, we actually end up saying there's not that many of them. Um, they, they could kill a lot of us. We don't really want to kill them. They can have this little piece. We'll, we'll give them this little piece. And they just take more and more and more. And by the way, they bring a disease that kills a shitload of our people. Um, and then they break their word over and over again, and you, you start realizing that there's more of them every day. So not only are they taking more land, they're bringing more and more people, and you start to realize this is, this is going to result in us losing everything we have. How quick would you be to start killing some sons of bitches? I mean, let's be honest about that. Let's be completely honest about that. How quickly would you take up arms to defend your nation... If it were under a continued hostile invasion by people who took what they took by threatening to kill you if you didn't let them have it. My take by Jack Spierko. Like I said, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I gave Squanto some, uh, some forgiveness, I guess is the right word. Maybe a little bit of understanding yesterday for calling himself the, the spirit of the darkness or whatever. I said today in a blog comment, I might have been a lot darker um, had I been a Native American in the 1600s watching this go on, scalping may have started long before it did. I'm just saying, man. We, we have a tendency to look back at the, the things they did, and as, as, as Alex has maybe tried to forgive, I don't know that we need to be forgiving. I think we need to be understanding, and we need to put ourselves in that place and ask, well, what would you have done? Would you let someone take your property? Would you let someone take your home? Especially if you thought force was a viable option. See, the government does this to us today all the time. They call it imminent domain. They fall into all kinds of ways to push us around, seize our property, take things from us. But what if there was a very small group that was vulnerable enough at the time that you could fight back? Would you? And how far would you have to be pushed? How many of your people would you watch die before you did? Again, I agree with Alex. This is this is to me is not about forgiveness. This is about understanding what went wrong in the past, so that hopefully we can prevent it in the future. But as I've said before, we lie to children. We say we study the history. We study history so we won't repeat the mistakes of the past. What we should be telling our kids is we study history because if some some dumbass did something in the past, some dumbass will probably do something similar in the future, and we need to be prepared to deal with it because I don't think we're going to prevent it. Anyway, with that, let's um. Get into, uh, well, before that, I got two things. One, MSB. Consider joining the MSB. You can help support the show. I'm going to leave it at that. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more about it today. Um, next up, though, I need to make an apology for yesterday. Um, I was doing a segment on a financial thing. Many of you may have heard this, but I dropped the F-bomb in the show. Realizing I did it, I left a long pause with the intent to come back and take it out. Um I did not come back and take it out. I forgot about it because I had a million things going on here yesterday. And uh, somebody pointed it out to me today. So I went in, and it, the, the currently uploaded version does not have that F-bomb in it. Um, I do curse on this show. I try not to say things that I actually consider to be truly offensive to people if it's legitimately offensive. I, I, I personally think that that in our society today, 
the F word is going too far for some people for no reason other than to upset them. So I choose to self-censor myself from that word. If you've ever met me in person, you know that I don't refuse to use that word at all. I just don't use it on the air. The other phrase I don't use is God followed by the word damn. I do not do that. I actually do not think that is taking the Lord's name in vain. I, I, I think that people that believe that have been told that and are conditioned to believe that. And I don't think that... It is an historically accurate way of looking at the commandment not to take the Lord's name in vain. But I also understand why it would be truly offensive to some people of, of certain groups and faith, so I choose not to use that word on the air either. So if you ever hear one of those, it's a slip that somehow got by, please let me know about it, and I will remove it. I can't promise that it will never happen. But I do try to make that allowance for people. I do not try to make the survival podcast G-rated, you know, family-friendly for kids. If you choose to let your kids listen to it, I suggest you take a good look at the subject matter first and decide whether or not this is what you want your kids to hear, or maybe let them hear parts of it. Uh, or as they get older, say, you know what, this is this is reality. This is how some people talk. Um, however. Um, I guess that's all I have to say. I, I don't want to unnecessarily be offensive. And if anybody was upset by that yesterday, I'm sorry. I'm human. And when I screw up, I admit it. That's all there is to it. With that, um, let's get into... Uh, oh, wait. Bob Wells' Plan of the Week. How could I have almost forgot since I forgot yesterday? Uh, today's Plan of the Week from Bob Wells is the pawpaw tree. The pawpaw tree is adaptable from Zones 4 to 8. It's also called the custard apple. Because of its delicious taste of vanilla custard, the trees grow to about 25 feet. Fruits three to six inches long. They work best if you plant two for pollination. Some people refer to the pawpaw as a miracle fruit because they attribute good health to it. The tree makes an attractive ornamental tree as well. And pawpaw plants are generally considered pretty easy to grow. Uh, you can find this plant and more at Bombwell's Nursery. Bombwell's Nursery specializes in edible landscape plants and trees, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruits, Nut trees as well is hard to find, especially trees. Um, let me remind you as well, if you're an MSB member, you get a discount, 10% off all your purchases from Bob Wells. My little throw-in on the pawpaw tree, I think you need acidic soil. I don't think it's very happy in alkaline environments. This is a northeastern native uh, to the northeastern woodlands, which tend to be fairly acidic, 6.5 uh, down to about 5.5. Five. This is the land where blueberries grow everywhere all by themselves. So this is acidic country, and the ones I have planted here are all dead. I don't think they're dead because it's hot. I think that they're dead because it's not acidic enough. So I think you either need to put this in a future location, keep lots of mulch on it, keep it in about a 60% shade environment. Uh, if you're in an alkaline environment, continuously amend the surrounding soil, at least the, to the drip line, as you expand that with wood mulch. Or if you're out in East Texas, you know, and you got sandy soils and all, it probably will do great. But out here in the Blackland Prairie where I live in, in central, north-central Texas, well, these trees, what happens is they look okay in spring, and the first stress that comes to them, just like the chinga pins I tried, they look like they're burning. They look like they, 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 just, they, they don't just go brown a little at a time. They go brown all at once. It looks like somebody dumped acid on the roots. Um, so if you want to do pawpaws and you're in alkaline soils, Make allowances for deep soil, stratification levels, and continuous amendments. I would suggest pine straw. 
All right, now we can get into the main topic of today's show. It's my good pleasure now to introduce our special guest today, Mr. Ryan Bradley, to talk about his experience uh, as a former teacher, by the way, uh, from public education system, moving on to duck sitting uh, at the Spearco Homestead and his new business that is designed to help people find caretakers for their homesteads and small farms when they're away for whatever reason. And with that, hey, Ryan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks, Jack. Glad to be here. I'm glad to have you on, man. We haven't we haven't chatted much since uh, since my vacation, where you were taking care of the property, which is going to be a big part of what we talk about today. But uh, let's let's start out with just letting people get to know you a little bit. How did you uh, How did you end up doing what you're doing now? What what, what exactly are you doing now? <laughs> um, you know, like most people, I think in in the, in the audience, you've probably kind of taken a wonky path. So, kind of tell us, you know, who is Ryan and and how did you end up where you're at? Absolutely. It has been wonky, windy, and bumps and hills all in between. Um, I'm in my mid-20s. I have currently, I guess from high school on, I went into a marketing degree in college and finished that, got into the workforce, did a little bit of sales, and found that I kind of felt like I was selling my soul and that wasn't too fun so i went into teaching thinking you know I'll, i'll make a difference i'll help students help the community that kind of deal and have found that that wasn't working either so currently what i'm doing is trying to sort of take a step back and become an entrepreneur of sorts Do my own thing. So I'm writing, I'm making podcasts, you're an inspiration, as well as so many others in this field now. And additionally, I'm applying some of the permaculture knowledge that I've learned over, I'd say, about the past half decade to try to help individuals and community. Well, I hope to work up to communities at some point. But for now, I'm starting with individuals. That was one of the reasons that I got involved with you when you offered the uh, opportunity to come and work at your place for about a week with the Ducks. And I've been doing that, well, I'm attempting to do that with some other properties as well. I've got some down here in Texas or in the Houston area, kind of putting my name out there. Yeah, and I mean, I think that like a lesson there is, so you came to one of my little $10 work-a-day workshops, and then, you know, I threw that out as an opportunity, and then you took that opportunity, and, you know, we don't know if this what this will turn into for you, but it's certainly uh, an ability to start exploring a pathway now, and that could lead to other things, and I think that a lot of people in your age bracket aren't really putting themselves out there and, and taking enough initiative to turn, you know, those types of things and opportunities for themselves. And, you know, kind of as a 20-something yourself, there's a lot of heat that comes down on your generation, a lot of which I think is ill-placed. I mean, but don't you think that that's something that more of your contemporaries need to be doing is looking for creative alternatives? Oh, the millennials especially. And I feel like there are so many alternatives at this current point that, The opportunities are 
very abundant. We talk about abundancy in permaculture. I think there are opportunities, but you have to be willing to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to feel afraid. You know, it's not exactly easy or uh, a a lighthearted thing to go up and ask somebody, hey, can I do this? It it might sound easy, but, you know, you, we've still got a, a, uh, a monkey brain. <laughs> we might think of ourselves as these high enlightened humans, but we still have these basic primal fears and feelings. You know, is this person going to like me? Do they actually need help? What if I'm uh, the hundredth person that they've talked to and they just want to go home at the end of the day and put their feet up? Maybe I'm just, you know, encroaching on their time. Yeah, but and, I think you have to get by it because, like, uh-huh. what I used to do in my sales training classes, I'd, I'd say, okay, everybody stand up. Okay, turn to the person next to you. Okay, the people on the left, tell the people on the right no. Right, everybody goes, no. <laughs> I go, people on the right, tell the people on the left no. Everybody goes, no. So, okay, everybody sit down. Anybody who's bleeding, raise your hand. Right, and everybody would laugh. But there is that inhibition, like, well, what if they say no? Well, what if they say yes? I mean... Uh, yeah, you know, and it, there is a, a certain like you were in sales for a while. You didn't like it, but there is some there is something to be learned there from a standpoint of well, if you want a yes, then it takes let's say ten no's. Exactly. So no's become a good thing, right? Absolutely, and you see it every day, and you just have to see the opportunities and say yes to yourself. You know, if you say yes to yourself, that Yes, I'm going to try it. Yes, I can. Yes, I'm willing. Eventually, someone else will say yes to you. Absolutely. So I said yes to you. You came here to take care of my property for a week. Um, had my nephew not wanted to take over, I would have had you for the whole thing. And we'll leave it off the air because his parents <laughs> occasionally listen. But it would have been better for me had I done that, um, Andy. And anyway, um, <laughs> but you, so you get here and you had a lot of stuff to take care of. But the biggest thing was taking care of ducks. So what was like the first thing you noticed about being on duck duty? Everybody, every lady and the guys are ready <laughs> to get out there and enjoy the day as soon as a sunflower bucket comes their way. Uh, the the ducks absolutely love those sprouted sunflowers. And you've got a system to where I think it's it's rotating every three to four days. And those sunflower seeds are beautiful when they're sprouted, but they're they disappear quick. <laughs> We call the white white ducks the white piranha. They're like white piranha, man. They just devour that stuff. But, you know, the nice thing is that gets them kind of into their whole routine for the day. Like as soon as they eat that, then they're just out, right? And they're they're out looking for their pools or whatever, and and that kind of keeps them in their routine. And I I think probably the other thing you notice is when you come out to see them in the morning, no matter how early you are, they're like, dude, you should have been here five minutes ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like they have been up. Forever waiting on you. <laughs> they don't sleep they're, they're much. Not, I've noticed that. I could hear them, you know, getting off in the morning, coming, I guess, at the end of the evening. Mm-hmm. They're still active, just like you say. They yeah. 
party until the wee <laughs> hours of the night. <laughs> I think they turn take turns sleeping and other ones party. It's it's they're not like chickens. I guess is the the point I'm making there. Like you put a chicken in in its coop at night and it goes into this like weird like zombie state. Like you can pick it up, it won't move. It just gets all sleepy. And the ducks, you go out at midnight, shine a light out there, and they start quacking and running around and jumping in the pools and. It's just a different kind of animal to take care of, but but I mean, you would say it's not a difficult thing. It's just they have certain quirks. Yeah, quirks to go not, quacks. <laughs> I had a my family had a dozen ducks or it's not, not ducks chickens um, when I was a a young man, and you're right. They put their neck down, their beak just sort of curls in towards their chest, and they're extremely docile. Uh, but the ducks are nothing like that. You can walk out there, like you said, and they're ready to play. They're ready to play, man. <laughs> you know, they make your day great, too. I was out this morning with them. I'm thinking, you know what? They come out here, they take a bath, they clean off, you know, they, they run out and eat some, some, uh, you know, grasshoppers or whatever, chew on a little grass, take a snooze, get up and have dinner. Like their life is, is in many ways better than mine. <laughs> And I but think we should be raising animals, though. Like I, that's what I love is that you know when we have people that want to buy our stuff, they come out here if they want to see the animals. You can just show them the animals, and you can tell that they're they're freaking happy, man. They wag their yeah. tails more than my dogs. Yeah, <laughs> they are happy, and you can tell it. You can see. I mean, granted, a duck can't really smile, but they wag their tails. They jump and play, and they seem genuinely pleased with their life. You know, they've got a rhythm. They wake up, they get sunflowers, they go out and scour the fields for grasshoppers, ladybugs, whatever is on the menu for the day. And a side note, since you brought it up with the, the swimming in the kiddie pools, the ducks look so much more regal or beautiful than chickens. And I don't really know. I guess it is because they tidy themselves up, but they just always look cleaner, at least yeah. in my opinion. Except for Arnold, because he won't bathe. I don't oh. with him, man. <laughs> the rest of them, yeah, because they have to take care of those feathers. So you're on the farm. I mean, you let the ducks out. That's the easy part. But there's a, there's a lot of stuff to be done around here, more than I think people realize. So what was kind of your easiest stuff here and what was kind of your hardest stuff of, you know, being on a farm and actually, you know, it's not a, he, a big farm or anything, but it's, it's, it's an operational farm now. Mm-hmm. I'd say the, the easiest part was probably following the systems. The way that you've got it set up was pretty, pretty easy to follow along. And the, uh, there is, some downtime in between each task, but that actually leads into sort of the, the hardest parts is that during that downtime, you know, after you're done feeding the ducks, getting them all out and making sure the dogs and other critters have their food, maybe you know, get your breakfast as well. You get this, this mid time, you know, maybe between about 930 until noon depending on time of the year. And there's a hundred different things you can do. You could, you have to water some areas of the property that maybe haven't gotten their lackluster, 
there's always little things to pick up or even as soon as uh well as soon as we get out of this heat wave i'm sure the fall garden will pick up and then you're going to have harvesting mm-hmm. which you can do you pretty much have to do in between rotations you know and i i feel like that's kind of how you've got it set up is you know you've got paddock rotation or area rotation and you've also got a rotation in time you know you've got this this time where you're really on and these things specific things have to be done and then you've got sort of a downtime secondary rotation that fills in or that you can fill in with all these different little options you know harvesting planting trimming prune uh i guess pruning would be basically the same thing but grafting and you really have to optimize okay what can i get done in this amount of time mm-hmm. now, i don't want to get started on planting out 50 trees if i know that i've only got half an hour before you know i need to go and flip out the duck kitty pools and so that was actually the hardest part was ra- uh figuring out exactly what can be done and trying to maximize your efficiency during those times and for you some of it was practical some of it was probably uh, theoretical too because you know for me it's 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 a maelstrom of all these things i know need to be done for you it's like i show you like here's the things to keep the thing operating and make sure nothing dies till i get back right so for for you you're thinking wow he should be doing this or that and this and i've got like a list like 400 times long <laughs> and i think that's like people don't realize when you actually step up from let's say a really small scale homestead with a little bit of homesteading going on to full on homesteading or to some level of commercial farming everything changes into the importance the priority a lot of times i have to look at something and go i really want this but the animals or the business or the property needs this i don't want this but i have to do this and i have to do this first and it's 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 a constant battle there's there's 20 things I'd like to do this week, and if I'm lucky, I'll get two done. You know, yeah. and 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 yet there's all the all the stuff that you were doing. That stuff all has to be done on top of it, and it's it's why it's so valuable to have someone that at least can do those things that need to happen every day. And like you know, you're saying like the easiest part was like following the system, and I have to say that having you here has provided multiple dividends because we have it easier now. Because I was forced to refine that system to where I could have a person that doesn't hang out here every day come mm. in and be able to follow it. Where I was doing so much by it, it worked, but it was all by instinct and all fly by the seat of your pants and what have you. And I think that my advice to people now that have homesteads and farms, even if you're not planning on having somebody come take it over, give yourself two weeks and say, if in two weeks I had to leave and I had somebody that was willing and able but didn't know a whole lot, and I was going to hand them the keys of the place and say, take care of it for two weeks and give them a two-hour briefing. How would I set this up? And your life gets so much easier when you do that because then you have that same system to follow. Oh, yeah. It, 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 then you also also have this, like, oh, I actually can leave. 
right? I, I can leave because you feel like you can't. And I mean, I've determined summer's the worst time for me to leave, but at least I can leave. And that's a huge thing because the animals and the plants keep you on property more than you'd think, I think. That's something that I've noticed. And it was odd for me to say this, but it was during my time teaching in a uh, sort of a rural public area school, or it was a public school in a rural area. And there are all these teachers, wives of people who own land, and they feel trapped. They feel sort of stuck to where they go to work, and then they come back to work, and then they go to work and come back. And I noticed, you know, if if they applied the same sort of systems design that they did in their classrooms to their home life, they might be able to get out mm-hmm. and do the vacation thing or even just have a day where they and their family just drives to a nearby city, has a day in the town, and they come back, and because they've got their systems, because they've built up a plan as opposed to sort of flying by the seat of their pants or just you know intuitively knowing, okay, this is what I need to do, they can come back and assuming they've got a person who followed the systems for that day or the week, everything should be running smoothly still. And if you want to teach people, like, it, it, you know, that's the other thing I realized, like when I started systematizing things a little bit more, it, it, it now makes the property far more educational because of, instead of somebody coming here and just going, holy crap, how do I do all this? They actually can see, holy crap, I can do all this. Like it totally changes the dynamic because <laughs> it's like paint by numbers. Like I can't paint, but if you give me paint by numbers and I fill all the fives in with orange and all the sixes in with blue, I'll end up with a picture of a you know orange and blue unicorn or whatever because the system's laid out so that's the natural result. Exactly. And I I know you might not want to harp on it, but I'll harp on it for you. It does come back to permaculture or systems design or even just uh, any kind of work where having a guide, having a, a field manual of sorts will cut down on the work that you have to do, even if it's just the mental work of remembering, okay, I have to do... This and then this and then that. You know, if it's just check boxes, it makes things go a lot faster. Yeah, I mean, you actually have me thinking of putting together like a manual for the farm, right? Because what I realize is there's like a hundred little things that can go wrong here. And all of them happen about one time a year, and several of them happen three or four times a year. And I could have somebody mm-hmm. here for a week, and none of them happen, right? And I can have somebody here for a week, and five of them could happen. And there's little tricks and techniques you develop to handle these things going wrong, like water overflowing on a return pond system or something like that. And if you built the system, almost no matter what breaks in it, you know how to fix it. Including, you know what? Nothing will die today. Unplug the pump, right? But your person you leave to take care of things may not know that. So I was you know, kind of kicking the idea around eventually developing like a farm manual uh, some kind of template that others could use so that you can catalog all that stuff to, you know, lower pond overflowing. Cause that's, that's not going to happen at the guy down the street's little farm because <laughs> he doesn't have one, but it's going to happen here sooner or later. And being able to just go, okay, 
I'm going to be here for less than two more days. Temperature's under 100 degrees. Unplug pump. Okay, he'll fix it when he gets back. Or, oh, shit, the fish will die. I need to fix this. Here's how to fix it. Whatever, you know. Um, and you get more into that systems approach. And I think for those that want to grow bigger farms, and we've learned this from some of the downsides of permaethos uh, in a large spring, the more you have of that, the more you can effectively make use of you know, a, a, a hiring help and what have you. Because when I look around, sometimes the reason I think I don't have a part-time worker is I can't put them to work in a way that's profitable enough hours a day consistently without me spending more time making sure they do it than just doing it myself. Oh, yeah. You practically have to follow them around like their shadow Yeah. just to make sure, okay, did you do it the right way? Yeah. Is it, are all steps completed? And if you've got a system, if you've got just a, a checklist or a, I guess you could make it like an outline and then they're the ones accountable and it comes back to building up that responsibility, that accountability within millennials and everyone really. Um, and I feel like that's something that isn't taught enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. So can you talk about some of the jobs and tasks you did while you were here? Sure. So we've done the morning. Uh, ducks are out at pasture, and it's time to go back, I guess, during that middle period in, mid, in the middle of the day. Uh, you've got a new... Weeping willow tree that had to be watered every day. The uh, you've got, I think, fifty to seventy-five trees mm-hmm. that you're starting, and a lot of those I noticed, or some of them, were pecans. Those are going to be awesome. Am I correct on that? Um, I'm not sure that there's a there was some pecans that were being started in like a pan. Mm-hmm. But what you're talking about might have been Rosa Sharon or might have been hummingbird vines if they were like a whole bunch in one pot. Is that what you're talking about? Or the individual no, trees. Well, those are apples. Well, the individuals are, okay, yeah, those are apples. And then the pan did have the pecans. Yep. And those are also sprouting. Yep. Or starting, germinating. So watering those every day, feeding the fish every couple of days, Making sure that they're still swimming around and looking not do, healthy. Not doing the backstroke, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. No floaters. <laughs> uh, and then with the your pets, there's a lot of care and love that has to go into just daily upkeep of pets. It doesn't have to happen, but it's nice. And... So, feeding Max and Charlie and Alice, the cat, and then sort of the daily chores of a a normal household, you know, making sure that things are tidy, cleaning a little bit here and there. As far as the farming aspect of it, because it was in the middle of summer, there was some irrigation that had to happen. so running the the pipe or the the watering systems that we put in during several of the uh, work with Jack weekends, I know you got those pretty much finished, and so 
I would turn those on for about five to ten minutes in the morning and then a little bit in the evening. And what I did was basically a, a zone method or something like that where I would do the front part of the house or the front yard on, let's say, Monday. And then Tuesday would be the backyard mm-hmm. or the back part of the property. And just sort of alternating between those two so that you're not overwatering and your your plants that you're wanting to build up tolerance to heat, sort of a, a hardiness, they get that stressor at least a little bit. They get some relief of it, but it's all about adapting to the climate and, you know, Unfortunately, in Texas, we get a lot of rain some years and not so much the next. And yeah, we get a whole ton of it in the spring and none of it in the summer. I mean, that's what we got this year. And yeah. You had some turkey issues too, didn't you? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was. Uh, you've got, a, a, I believe, a male turkey who is uh, feisty. <laughs> we'll call him feisty. <laughs> So me and the me and the turkey, we got along. We made it, but <laughs> he was tough. Uh, basically, it seems like, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but because he's male, he's somewhat more aggressive because he's got his girls. He's protective, and he's sometimes can be a bully, or at yeah. least what you know from human morality. Yeah. <laughs> So I noticed that he was sometimes pecking at other birds, ducklings uh, that were near his his food, especially at the end of the night mm-hmm. when you go in and you call all the – I'll get into that in just a minute. But at the end of the night when all the ducks and birds are back in their housing area, you feed them and he would run around – to everybody's pail other than the the main turkey one and sort of push and shove. Uh, and I do have sort of a bad note. He may have ended up killing one of the ducklings. I, I can't prove it, but I know that he had picked up one of the ducklings in his beak, like he had pecked it and picked it up. And I had to sort of swat him to get him to drop the duckling. And that was, I think that was the first evening, maybe the second evening that I was there. And, you know, it was just sort of like a, you might pat a a dog on its rear if it was doing something wrong. And I feel like he kind of got the message, but going on for the rest of the week, I had my doubts. Um, yeah, I think he did, and I also think that, like, I don't know how much of the baby attacking thing was aggression and how much of it was maybe just pure curiosity that once it was sated, he's like, oh, okay, that's what they are. Because the week before you got here, I was planting some apple seedlings, and I had a bag of apple seed that had been stratified, and he saw that bag, and he was following me around. And whenever you work, they check out what you're doing. Like, the ducks don't care. As soon as you start digging a hole or something, he's like, what do you, what do you, what do you got there? You got, you got a worm? 
And so he's there checking this out, and he fixated on that bag. Mm. And I set the bag down and grabbed the 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 ear pan or what uh, the whatever the thing is called the water box that I was trialing, and that turkey grabbed that freaking bag, and bolted with it. Now oh. he doesn't want to eat apple seeds. He doesn't even <laughs> know what's in there. It was just un- something he didn't know what it was, and he wanted it, and he hauled ass with it. And I had to chase him all the way to the fence, and he started doing that thing where they kind of like. Left, right, left, right, like you're trying to, you know, juke a mm. person when you're playing football. And because the fence is there and he doesn't know what to do. And I had to grab him and shake him. And then he dropped that bag. But yet this morning, all the turkeys are standing out there and we have a, quite a few baby ducklings now, some bigger ones that were hatched when you got here and some really little ones that have hatched, you know, the last few weeks. Oh, and two of the little ducks were literally standing under the turkey using the turkey as shade. Well, and, and they don't even care now. So I, I think it was more like, a confusion or, you know, just he didn't know what they were. I, I don't think it was really aggression because if it was aggression, I mean, a, you know, they're big birds. I could pick that duckling up and it'd be done in a second. But he may have killed that one through stupidity, honestly. They're not exactly smart. Um, and that does make a lot of sense because when I was out there watering the, the kiddie pools, he would occasionally come up and as the water was going, he would peck into it. And drink there. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah. See this turkey basically, you know, it's like uh, seeing somebody stick their head into a waterfall in order to get a drink. It's, uh, but he would sometimes peck the hose. And I was like, well, okay, if, if that's what you want to do. <laughs> but yeah, and I think people think so that makes sense. chickens, but they do things that I would I never expected until I started keeping them like. A chicken can be ready to die from heat, and mm. it will just sit next to a, t- a tub of water. It won't dare step in that water. You know, it's like it's freaked out by it. But I've got a picture of you today on the blog where you're filling the pool, and a turkey's just standing in the middle of the pool up to his ankles in the water while it fills up. Oh, yeah. he They don't care. <laughs> I mean, maybe, or rather they do care, I guess. <laughs> yeah, they're, in, a, in a good way. Last night I was running sprinklers in the backyard just for the birds. And the one turkey was standing, was, and I have those high rotary sprinklers, uh, and he had his neck stretched just so basically the water was just pounding him in the face. Now, it was 107 degrees yesterday or something like that. So, it was, it was yeah. so hot. Yeah, the, you know, so the mind starts to work a little bit even for a turkey. But So there was some unexpected turkey stuff. Was there anything else that was really kind of surprising or unexpected while you were here? The ducks went to bed really well. That was surprising to me. Um and I know it sounds like maybe silly or strange, but the the time clock inside of a duck brain is sort of fascinating. They clearly know when it's getting close to dusk or dark time, and they make their way home. Um, it seems like, yes, I had to go out and catch some stragglers and sort of round up a couple of them that got stuck on the other side of the fence, but they're quacking the whole time, sort of acting like, I want to get in there, I want to be with my buddies. And so I actually had a question. Do you think this is mostly due to nature or instinct, or do you feel like it's primarily brought on because of the way that you've trained them or uh, homesitted them? 
I think it's training more than anything else. And the reason I think that is like, so it's nobody gets surprised when all the chickens go in the coop at night. But why do the chickens go in the coop at night? Because it gets dark and they get scared as shit and they go in the coop for protection. Well, if you've seen how, you, you know, you've seen now how the ducks behave in the evening, they don't care. They don't get afraid. They don't get sleepy. They don't worry about roosting. They, they just hang out. And I think if we hadn't conditioned them to do that, that, you know, they might come there to get a bite to eat or something, but they wouldn't all just, because they do, they file in like a military formation. All ducks go to bed, and in they go. And, you know, we did that because I watched a lot of videos of people all over the world in third world nations where they're moving much larger flocks, you know, with these birds trained. And I was like, well, if you, you know, if some little kid in, in Thailand or India can train his ducks, then I should be able to do it. And we just started, a, you know, a thing of they get fed every night, they get told to go to bed every night, and they get forced to go to bed every night. So in the beginning, it's not as simple. There's a lot more hurting, you know, mm -hmm. to it. You get two people, you get a couple. Because a bamboo stick, unless the duck's really freaked out or really determined, you just hold out a little thin bamboo cane to their peripheral, and if they're going left and you hold it out, they just kind of go back right, and you can just lead them. But once they've been through that process, I'd say it takes like a week. And then they're 90% there, and like you said, you get stragglers. And what I've found is I think I have a lot more stragglers when it's summertime and it's light out till 9.30, and I want to be in my underwear in front of the couch with a beer at 8 o'clock, and I don't want to go back out, so they're going to bed early. Then they don't want to go. But I yeah. think that it's not a time thing. I think it's a, a light, like when the light is a certain way, That's when they've kind of accepted, okay, this is bedtime. Because my days right now, you know, we're getting 14, 15 hours of daylight. Well, it, you know, we won't get what they get in Montana where they're getting like freaking 18 or something like that right now. But in, in midwinter, you know, we're going to be down to eight, nine hours of daylight. And they stay on that light pattern far more than they do on the time. Uh, and I, it's also we stay on, well, an hour or two before bed, at the earliest is when unless we have something going on and just need to do it that's when we put their food out for the for the evening so they know their food's going to be there and i think you probably noticed too like if you feed them the night before and they don't eat all the feed and there's a little bit of food left over they go out and party for you know a couple hours and then about lunchtime they all you know not all of them but a big yeah. group of them wander back in they have a snack and they go back out and so i think that's so there's a, that's an we didn't teach them that That's just because they know their supplemental guaranteed food they don't have to chase is going to be sitting there for them. So I think it's a combination of innate behavior. They go home to roost, right? So like the other thing, you, if, you, if you ever hunt ducks, you'll notice like when you are hunting in a swamp at a certain time of night, they have you stop shooting. You can't shoot anymore, even though it's still light out, because the ducks start coming in a roost. And it's, you know, the, the, you know, shooting a fish in a barrel type of thing because they're setting their wings and landing in trees. So they, the game departments will have times where, like, so they, there's a natural instinct, even for a traveling duck, to go somewhere to, to be for the night. Now, those ducks are a lot more afraid because they have all kinds of things trying to eat them. But I think so. I think it's our training coupled with natural behavior. It's a long answer, but that's the best answer. That makes a lot of sense. And yes, they absolutely do come back in the afternoon sort of to check things out. And I feel like they also, coming back to that sociable aspect of them, they like hanging out in a big group or splitting off for a little while into their small groups mm -hmm. and then coming back in and sort of converging and 
meeting up, and they must have some fascinating stories. They have social uh, arrangements, definitely. There's there's no doubt about it, and there's generational components to it because you'll see the group of mostly black ducks. There's a few other colors in there, but mostly black ducks that hatched, you know, three four months ago, and, and that group of 18 moves around together. And then you'll see this the group of white ones that all came up on the Duck Chronicles together, and they're together. And then there's the rest of the flock, and then there's the Muscovies that have their own little, you know. <sighs> social <laughs> conventions <laughs> where they have this very, you know, laborious discussions with each other. And even though that's a different species, except for the newly hatched Muscovies, all those, so that's not really a species thing to me. I think that's more of a generational thing because all those birds were purchased from one place and they all grew up together. So I think that there's almost like, you know, like teenagers hang out and the younger kids hang out and then the 20-somethings hang out and then the old people hang out kind of in their own generational group that they're comfortable with. Because the Muscovies that hatched, they kind of go back and forth. They kind of hang out, like they know they're Muscovies. They kind of hang out with Arnold and the gang. But they, they go out and they range out with everybody else. Where the rest of the Muscovies, for the last two weeks, they've been living under the pool deck all day long. They won't leave. They're like, it's shaded here. Food's right there. There's a pool there. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like they've found the, the easy life. <laughs> and it's why I'd recommend them for suburbanites. They don't, they just don't range as much as the, all the other ducks. The Muscovies just kind of just chill and they're quiet and they just want to be left alone and they let you know if they're upset by hissing at you. Um, oh, yeah. you're a lot more organized than me. You use like tools and systems and documentation like to keep on track here. Well, a lot of that I did develop as a teacher. Um, you, you have to. And, it feels a little like, you know, you're orchestrating a classroom or you're orchestrating uh, a day or herding ducks. It all sort of feeds into each other. Um, you can use the same type of systems to accomplish different tasks. So I used a couple of different tools. I'm not using, you know, uh, a stone tablet or anything. I had a, a list of things that were written out, and I kind of organized that into a.m., uh, afternoon, and evening categories and tried to arrange it to where each item in a category flowed into the next one. So, for example, in the morning, you know, the dogs wake up, ducks are already, they've been up since 3 a.m., they're ready for you. <laughs> and so... You take the dogs outside, open the garage, water the plants, grab the sunflowers and egg basket, and then lead, like, egg collection basket, and then lead the ducks out. You start filling kiddie pools, and while the, the kiddie pools or the duck ponds are getting filled, I feel like you might as well collect eggs. I mean, I, I could, stand there and wait for the water to pour into the kiddie pool, but I'd just as soon get out of the heat. And so I would collect eggs and go do the small things while the ponds were filling up and then come back. And after that's all done, you have to wash the eggs or sort of clean them down, 
and get them packed into cartons. And then that's pretty much done for the morning. And I would try to knock that out in about an hour or two. It Obviously, as the week went on and I got better at it, uh, that, that time invested in each task decreased just because I was building up proficiency in it. You know, you, you practice anything, you should get better at it. And so in terms of the technology that I used, I basically just used a pen and pencil and paper. And then I did use uh, some digital stuff to organize my skip, my, my chat, my tasks. And I used Evernote, OneNote, and then for the candling of the duck eggs, you guys have something called an overview, which you you basically put underneath an egg, and it's effectively, I think, just an LED light bulb, and it shines light through the egg so yep. that you can see if it's fertilized or not. And so one or two times I forgot the overview, and I realized, well, I've just used my camera, fa- my my. Uh, smartphone camera LED flashlight and it worked just fine. You know, it's not perfectly round. You can't set the egg on it completely, but it got the job done. Gotcha, man. And so those are kind of the tools that I used. And since this is kind of the, the generation that I'm speaking to anyway is the the younger crowd if you ever played any rpg games or things where you had quests or a task to do if you grouped them up to where let's say uh you go into a, a new town or a new zone in the game and you've got five or ten different things that you have to get done to move on to the next city I always found that if you group them up and sort of map out, okay, this one is the closest, so I'll do it, or closest to the town, so I'll do it last. I'll go out to the furthest uh, quest first and then work my way back. That's kind of the system that I applied to your property, which was get all of the active things going first, move into the passives, and then work my way back to the zone zero in terms of permaculture, the the home. So I found that it worked pretty well. Yeah, well, I mean, it it, it did while you were here, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I think that... um, one of the things you might have noticed is even though we're in what I call the Texas pause, right? So for most of the country, the big pause in growing is winter. And, mm-hmm. you know, we get ice and snow here, but pretty much everything that's that's winter hardy survives. And I have video of this property completely green from one end to the other in the middle of February. This time of year, we get a lot of stuff that's kind of sparse and all. But if you look at our property 
compared to like all the other properties around here. There's a, there's a pretty distinctive difference that you can see from the management, the animals impact and things like that. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that it's the middle of summer and we're having our hundred degree plus days, things were pretty lush on your property. Uh, there were some patches of dirt and clay and the swell bottoms were a little bit dry, but the areas with plants in them were thriving. You know, berries are producing a little bit late this year due to that early rain that we got. It just sort of drowned them out, but they're producing nonetheless. I had some of the blackberries. They were delicious. Uh, the sunflowers, oh my gosh, they are gigantic. Yeah. And they clearly are enjoying the the life that they've got. I mean, you've got a, it looks like a wonderful synergistic system between the sunflowers and the ducks that love sunflowers. Yeah. I, I don't think you're going to have any problems. Well, <laughs> like this time of year, a lot, a lot of those sunflowers are really ready to come down. You know, they're starting to brown up. They're just... Not because they're sick, it's just they're they're done. They're an annual, and mm-hmm. I leave them standing a lot longer because now we got blazing hot heat, we got blazing sun, and that means that whatever they're growing around is being shaded. So I mean, I'll give them like another two weeks until we get out of this. You know, hundred. When you look at the forecast right now, it's like a hundred, hundred one, hundred and two, hundred and two, hundred and one, hundred and four, hundred and six, hundred, hundred, hundred. When we stop seeing that, it'll be time for those to come down because right now. It's shade for the other plants and it's shade for the ducks. You know, the ducks, that's like a forest for them. I mean, if, if you think about it, like you said, those sunflowers are 10, 12 foot tall. And I don't know if you really notice this or not, but none of those are domestic. Those aren't domestic sunflowers. Those are wild sunflowers. Those are oh. indigenous, native, wild sunflowers. And uh, so we don't plant those. They just grow. Wow. And uh, they produce a lot of biomass, too. So when they get cut down, like I'll just I'll go in there with a machete and just take the leaves off the stalks, and then I'll lop the top off, and then the flowers and the seeds hit the ground, and then I'll lop the stalk off at the bottom, and we'll stack those stalks up. And yeah. that's like the – it takes like a week for them to dry out. After a week, they're just bone dry. They're hard as a rock for what they are because they're hollow. But that hollow, dry stem, you hit that with a match – and that stuff's like the best kindling you'll ever get your hands on. So we'll wow. use that like to start our fires for our biochar production in the fall. And it's thick. Those stalks are healthy stalks. We've you had know. some that were so big that I cut the bottom off with a sawzall. And when I had students here, I'd throw the bottom at them and go, what is that? And they would be like, is that one of those pieces of wood for hermit crabs to crawl in that they, you know, <laughs> like, like a really big one of those things they sell at like pet stores and all? Like, no, that's a... That's a, a, a sunflower stalk because the bottoms of the really big ones will get, you know, by this time, some of them are three, four inches in diameter. And when they dry, like all the green comes off them, and it, it does kind of look like cactus wood or something like that. Not quite the same, but similar to that. So it's, it's, it's kind of cool, really, the, the way that they, they work out into the whole system. Yeah, I liked them. So... You said you had a, a treat for folks who follow the Duck Chronicles. What's up with that? Oh, yeah. Well, since this episode is primarily about the ducks anyway, I figure why not open up what I had access to for a week so that everyone can see it. So I've got a folder with 
about 20 plus pictures of the ducks, ducklings who had just hatched the week that I was there and the egg processing and Charlie. Max was a little photo shy, but Charlie was all about getting his picture taken. Uh, the turkey in the kiddie pool. And it's also got the sunflowers and a, a story that I, I forgot to tell you about, a mouse rescue. Oh, mouse uh, rescue. Yes. The, this was the story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> he, uh, he fell into one of the sunflower buckets. Ah. Or at least I found him swimming around in there. And so Charlie had been going crazy over something in the garage all week. And I, I think it was a mouse. But yeah, I'm, I, I'm looking at your pictures right now. That's a small rat. Small rat, That's sorry. That's a rat, yeah. <laughs> a very wet rat. I see him now. <laughs> yep. And so I found him swimming around in the sunflower bucket one morning, and Charlie was there wagging his tail, thinking, oh, boy, I finally got him. He's mine now. <laughs> and I, I just sort of looked at Charlie, and I was like, nope, nope, we're good. We're going to save this little rat. And so I scooped him out of the mount, the sunflower bucket and put him on one of your trees. So I see that. Just for future reference, the dog is allowed to kill rats. Well. It's his job. So no more rescuing rats, man. (laughs) (laughs) Though I have to say I have some sympathy for this rat. He, He looked. I mean, it was that... The headline, Drenched Rat, would have been completely apropos. <laughs> so, uh, people can get these pictures at bit.ly slash tsptdc. And that's a short link. It stands for their survival podcast, The Duck Chronicles. So, again, it's bit.ly backslash tsptdc. If you want the... The full link, or the full link, uh, Jack, it'll be you've got that. Notes. It can be in the, yeah. It'll be in the show notes, but yeah, that'll get you there if you're writing it down because you're out and about. But uh, I think you'd be surprised if you were here now because you, you've got a lot of pictures of the ducklings that have just hatched. Those mm-hmm. birds are at least half as big as the adults at this point. Oh, my god! That gosh. fast they grow. And there's another four, I want to say another four of them that are little bitty, and all of them that hatched except one hatched inside the main house. The ones that were brooding out in the little house, none of them hatched except one. And there huh. were three ducks, if you remember. There were three ducks sitting on one nest, like fighting over it. Mm-hmm. And one was a Cayuga, the other one was like a Black Runner, and the other one was like a, a Muscovy. A mu- yeah, Muscovy. Well, the Muscovy is very maternal. All of them are. They're just extreme. You know, they'll take a duck that's not theirs. And the Cayuga and the Black Runner just kind of were half-assed in it. Like, they just kind of wanted to be part of it. And, but the baby duckling imprinted on the, the black female. And now that we've taken all the eggs away and said what hatched is hatched, she's still imprinted more on that one than the Muscovy as her mother, and that one leaves for hours at a time. And then she just runs after any black duck. And eventually, when none of them will have her, then she kind of, like, sits up with the Muscovy because she will not... She won't go join the other group of babies. So whenever she sees a black duck, she runs out. We have this really beautiful black runner male drake, and she runs after him like he's mommy, and he's not aggressive. He's just terrified of her. 
she was chasing him all over the place yesterday, and he was just running and just trying to get away from her. And eventually she'll give up and go over with the with the uh, with Scubby. So we're just hoping she gets a little more size on her as, as soon as possible. She's itty-bitty. She's like two weeks old right now. So she's like mouse size. But uh, it, it's, it's funny to me that even though all of those ducks were there, she clearly had one she favored as an imprint. And it may be that, that, that like the other two were taking a break when she hatched, and it was just the first one she saw or whatever. But she also clearly is imprinted on the, the female Muscovy. It's, it's weird. I mean, the, this thing is so – like the ducks are so simple, yet they're so complex. We learn new things every day. Yeah, and that's the thing is I felt like by getting to work there for a week, I really got to embed myself in their ducky culture and yeah. to sort of – investigate their their social hierarchies the way that they interact with each other and just everything about them that's so different from us humans and other animals and yet there's aspects of similarity so all of this kind of led you toward an idea an entrepreneurial idea you want to tell people what you're working on now yes so my idea it does revolve around permaculture and farming uh, sustainable agriculture. And it's manifested as this website, farmsubs.com. And that stands for Farm Substitutes. It might change later into a different name, but that's what I'm running with right now. It's designed as a Airbnb meets Amazon with a permaculture contractor marketplace. Basically, farmsubs.com is a community-ranked substitute farmer marketplace where farmers or owners find talent or contractors and they meet with each other so that the farmer can take a day, a week off or go and do other things, and a contractor can come in, learn about a property, develop their skills, and build a work portfolio. Basically, I'm trying to provide a, a marketplace where people who are interested in permaculture or sustainable ag can get their feet wet and try it out before going $200,000 or more in debt for land, animals, pr uh, plants, etc. I think it feels a really valuable niche because, you know, we talked about this, and I had Joe here as an intern, and he's a great friend and all, but, you know, what that taught me was my operation's not big enough for full-time internships. It just isn't, and it's it's not even big enough for seasonal internships, like, let's say, you know, three-month rotation twice a year. It just isn't. It, it's... It's not that much work that we need people when we're here. You know, when you were talking about like how you handle the mornings where you're collecting the eggs while you're filling the pools, I was thinking, man, we got it easy because Dorothy collects the eggs and I fill the pools. Ah. So, so I'm sitting out there with the hose running, sitting in a lawn chair, and that's when I read my, you know, I read my Amazon Kindle fiction books, you know, my Brad Thor or whatever, and I'll sit there while the ducks quack and walk around with me while the things fill up. She takes care of the eggs. So we kind of have a, a division of labor, 
So for us, what's a lot of work to you is only half as much work for us, and then we do it every day, right? Mm -hmm. So we've gotten really efficient at it, and we we have it right blended into our days. It's not even – I don't even think – like we don't call it chores. We don't call it work. We don't ever refer to it that way. On days when it's really hot, you start to feel that way. But most <laughs> of the time, we're just like, well, I'm going to go feed the ducks now, or I'm, I'm going to go you know, fill their pools up, or I'm going to go take care of this. It's just – it's part of our lifestyle. So with a three-acre place, and I mean, even if it was a five-acre place, you know, I just, I don't need even seasonal labor that's that regular. So then how do you ever leave? Right. You know, and, and, and what I need is someone to be able to come in, and they don't have to do it as good as we do. They just have to do it well enough that nothing dies. Those and that our support. customers get service. We have certain customers we have to be able to serve every week. And like you took care of that for us. Our big customer that comes in and gets 10 dozen a week, they send a food truck that collects all local produce and stuff. And we need to be able to service that customer. We're on the, we're on a table at one of Dallas's top new restaurants and we need to keep that. And so how do you do that? You need a person that can come in and, and do that. And for us, we're fortunate we found you. Okay. How many people with three acre duck farms? have the amount of people with eyes on them that, you know, Nine Mile Farm does through TSP? The answer is not many. So mm -hmm. we got lucky finding you. If there was a place we could do that, because, you know, if you want a dog sitter, you call the vet. They, like, know 20 people to do that. You're like, well, I need somebody to take care of my ducks, my turkeys, uh, my dogs, uh, my trees, uh, my irrigation systems, my fish. Uh, you know, handle my customers are like, shut up, go away. We don't do that. You know, it, th there is no place really to find people like that right now. And yet that's exactly the work experience that somebody who wants to evaluate whether they want to really get into permaculture is exactly what they need. Mm -hmm. you know, they need that opportunity to experience permaculture. Learning about it is great. I've done the PDCs. I've I've taken your perma ethos course, um, and the theoretical is, but it's definitely the first thing to do. You know, if you want to do permaculture, you want to do sustainable ag, you should learn about it first. But you also need that practical application. You need the ability to test out your skills, and from the the owner, the land or the property owner uh, point of view, you want somebody who's going to come in and do it your way or do it the right way for your farm. You know, if you were to hire, let's say you were to call the vet and say, I've got a duck farm and I've got all these other things, just send a guy out. And the, the vet says, okay, we'll, we'll just send a person. You don't know that they're going to do it the right way. No. They might be sending somebody who is, you know, they're a great dog walker, but they don't know anything about ducks or turkeys or irrigation or how to tell if a plant is wilting or just going into a, a blossoming phase. And to develop this marketplace where qualified in individuals can put out, okay, this is what I'm good at, and owners can say, this is who I'm looking for, and these are the, the skills and traits that they need to have when they 
come onto my one acre or three acre property, I feel like that could be a valuable resource. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, so each time, like, so I might look at someone on there and say, they're not right for my farm yet, but if they, through this marketplace, find two or three other places that are a little less advanced, gain a little bit of skill, a little bit of background, then maybe I would use that person. Right? So I think it gives people kind of a, a soft entry. And I'm going to be a lot less tight on skills. I mean, I'm going to be really tight on, you know, I think ethics and morals and not like hawking my TV while I'm gone. But I'm going to be a little less tight on skills on one day because only so much can go wrong in one day. So I might be willing to use somebody for a day while I take a trip down to Austin for a day with my wife or something, go shopping. Um, and then that person might get a call back. So there's all these different ways that people can get self-entry. And I think for a lot of people in your age group and specifically a little bit younger, right, the guys that are mm. 18 to 23 that are just trying to figure out what the hell do I do with my life, if you take this and start thinking a little bit deeper and saying, okay, well, maybe this type of thing isn't something that can keep me gainfully employed all the time, but if I'm going to do something like Wolf or Intern, and then I'm going to be off for a couple of months before the next project, and I can take two or three of these, I can start getting more and more diversity. Because I think, you know, you're right, the theoretical thing is important. I think the reason people should take a PDC is because you don't even know what you're looking at without it. You think you know, but you don't know, right? You don't understand really the, the the fundamental design components of it and you don't understand the elegance it's like looking at it's like looking at art without knowing the first thing about a brush stroke or an impressionist uh, concept or something if you can't you can look at it goes a pretty picture but you can't really understand like the the mastery of the artist behind the picture where when you have a permaculture perspective you can see the faults and you can also see like wow this is really well designed and i understand why they did this and i understand why there's five other ways that look better but this actually is really spot on so that helps you but once you get out there you know what a lot of people would do is they'd come here for like a couple weeks and go you know what i think ducks are awesome whatever i do i want ducks to be part of it and some other people would come here and go i don't ever want to see a duck again for us <laughs> lives and i think you need to get out there and determine what what goes on the i want list what goes on the, if I got to do this because it's profitable list, and what goes on the no way, no hell, no chance list. Like the other day I saw a cartoon on Facebook, and it was Satan talking to God. And he's like, come on, let me create just one thing. And God's finally like, fine, go ahead. Satan's like, yes. And then the next picture is a goose, right? So Satan's oh. like, a goose, right? So, And, I mean, there's people that feel that way. Like I, I don't want them here anymore, but if I had 10 acres with a couple lakes, there would be plenty of geese here. But they don't fit this design. Like, and how do you know that? Well, you deal with them. Well, how about you deal with my geese for a week and save yourself months and months of goose battles, right? Oh. I mean, so there's like a huge learning opportunity here and then a huge value add to the property owner that can say, I can finally leave. <laughs> yeah. And you talk, you bring up the geese. Well, there are tons of ideas that I know I personally have had about, okay, I'm going to get property, I'm going to have this plant or this animal on it, and I'll have to raise these many to make a profit because yeah. I can sell them at this rate and blah, blah, blah. And you, you do all the numbers, but if you don't see, you know, especially if you're going into a niche market, if you haven't seen anybody else pull it off, it might be nice to try to find someone regional or at least somewhat nearby who has a small operation going 
and test the waters, see if they're doing okay and what problems you might want to address beforehand. So I feel like farmsubs.com could provide a an entryway for a whole lot of entrepreneurial adventures. You know, you get to as the contractor, you get to try out multiple different job sites and you could even use it as a method of paying for travel. You know, let's say that I live in Texas, but I want to try working up in the Northeast. Well, I can move up there or I can wolf or uh, volunteer or I can get paid through a service you know, by contracting out with the owner saying, you know, I'm going to come up there for a couple of days or a week. And I feel like everybody could filter based on their preferences. Maybe I don't like ducks, but this place up in the Northeast, it only does um, pigs. <laughs> and so I can go up there, see the Northeast. I'm not really there for the pigs, but I can, assuming that I have a system, a checklist of tasks that need to be done, you know, those life support systems, plus the add-ons that keep things running, that could be another way for people to venture out of their their cozy bubbles. Yeah, definitely. And I think like the the ability like especially for young people to be able to travel and cover the cost of travel so you come work for me for a week and then you know you check you, I don't know, cruise on down to the coast and hang out down at, you know, Corpus or something for a week. Oh yeah. You know, enjoy well, your life while you can cuz trust me, it don't it doesn't get any uh easier to screw off as you get older. It gets harder. <laughs> and when I was you is it okay if I say the city? Yeah. Of your Okay, so when I was up in the Fort Worth, Dallas area, I did. I went out and looked at Fort Worth. I went down to Dallas, and it was after everything was done, but I wanted to check things out, you know. I'm look I'm not held down to any location at this point, and I wanted to see what's the culture like, what's the atmosphere like, what's the the temperature like. That's a very important thing to know here in Texas, <laughs> and I wouldn't have had that opportunity if I wasn't already on site. I mean, I, I, I could have driven the hours that it takes to get to a new town and used up gas and food and hotel or apart, you know, uh, motel lodging, and those are all expenses. Mm -hmm. Well, I can either pay to travel or I can help somebody out and get some payment. Or you can help somebody out, get some payment, and the time you do pay to stay because you stay an extra day or something, you write off as a business expense. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because now that you have a, a gainful means of employment for being there, a lot of things that were just expenses are now a, a, a tax-deductible expense. And so, like, that alone, for, for a 22, 23-year-old kid, and I guess I can call 23-year-old kid now that I'm more than twice their age. Um, when, for that person at that age to start understanding the, the difference between employee and business operations, then 
that is yeah. something that, that you know you really don't learn that in school. There's like courses in entrepreneurship and stuff, but to really understand the advantages of earning money, spending it, and then paying tax on the remainder versus earning money, paying taxes, and being able to spend the remainder. That alone is a switch. And you can hear about it on a book on tape, or I guess they don't make those anymore, a downloadable book, you know, or, or whatever. <laughs> but, but the first time you do it and it works, you're like, oh, I, I, I don't have to play by their rules anymore, really? I can do whatever. I can, I can buy a car and I can depreciate it over five years? And expense it, or I can lease a car and write off the entire lease expense, or I can do mileage against the car. And like, so I have those. My three choices are now: How exactly do I maximize my purchase of this car to reduce my taxes? Versus how do I beg for money so I can get a car? Right, and, and that switch. I think, man, we need your generation and down to learn those lessons because the. You know, my generation was told the, the days of get a job and work 30 years and get a gold watch are over. Man, they're over for us, but you guys, there's, they, you don't even get a freaking Timex at the end of five years. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack, you are getting right to the heart of the subterfuge that I am trying, or the, the insurgents that I am trying to build into this. If I can develop something, build a, a marketplace where you learn skills as a young person, business skills, mm -hmm. people skills, how to work for yourself while helping some, you know, work for yourself, work for another person, and be honorable about it. I, I feel like I'm basically striking at the heart of this, this current system. And so this is not ready. <laughs> If you go there right now, there's like a picture, and, and you're, you're, you're working on developing this site. What is kind of your development timeline for it? Development timeline is hopefully within the next week to month. I want to be done with the website within a month, and it's going to be an online marketplace, like I said, similar to Airbnb. You'll list as a property owner. You'll put up your property, a picture of it or a set of pictures, and say, we're looking for a duck herder or... We're looking for a pig farmer, somebody you want something specific. As a contractor, you're going to say you log in, have an account, and you basically create a resume of your skills. Don't worry about the fluff. Nobody cares about it anyway, and it'll easily be snuffed out or uh, sussed out when you show up on property. So. Don't bother, you know, trying to pad resumes where you're just going to be listing your skills, things that you're proficient with, and then listing things that you want experience in. And as a property owner, you will list your property and have people bid on it or Try to sign up. Apply for it, basically, mm -hmm. right? Apply so, like, for it. You, so you'll basically gain uh, a group of uh, uh, of candidates for your job. Hopefully, you know, correct. That they're willing to take it for you know, the money you're willing to pay and the time you need it and what have you. I think that's great. I mean, that's that's how you do contract placement and everything else. And it just doesn't seem to exist for this. So it's it's it's. But you 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 your hope is to also have things like so I, I hire uh, Joe uh, to come here. Mm -hmm. Offer your service, and Joe comes here and does a really great job. 
Well, then I'm going to review Joe and say, hey, Joe's great. He's a good guy and all. Joe comes here. Well, say I hire Joe, and I, Joe's not available next time, so now I hire Sam. So Sam comes here, and I, I come home. He's, he's, he's laying on my couch smoking dope. Um, the, uh, the, the, the ducks are all running out in the street. Half of them are dead. <laughs> Nothing's been watered in a week or whatever. So then I'm going to review Sam and, like, do not ever hire this guy. So kind of like an Angie's List type thing there where there's this track record because – Honestly, I don't need somebody with a lot of experience. I need somebody that can take direction, do what the hell they're told, and not come up with their own ideas. I like An intern right. can come up with his own ideas. Like I can say, you got two hours a day, here's a budget, go do something. When I hire somebody to do this, I don't want you to have your own ideas. I want you to do exactly what the hell I told you to do and follow my system so that when I come home, everything is as good as it was when I left. That's all I'm looking for. And so if I see somebody has been on three or four projects – And maybe they've never worked with ducks, but they've worked with chickens. They've worked with you know other animals. They've taken care of gardens and and they've done a good job and you know took care of dogs and stuff. I know that I can bring them here and give them a one hour briefing, and say you feed them this in the morning, you feed them this in the afternoon, you let them out here. They go here today. They go in that paddock tomorrow. Uh, they stay there for the rest of the week. Here's our number and call us. And if that person's dependable, I'm happy yeah. with gaining experience on, on my property because. It's not going to interfere with your ability to do something where if I'm a rancher that's shifting cattle with movable electric fencing that doesn't have predetermined paddocks, I need someone that can read the land and follow the one-third rule. And, and those are totally different needs. So my needs right. are relatively simple. I mean, you've been here. It's, it's a lot of stuff, but it's not hard. Where knowing exactly when to move you know, seven herd of cattle on a seven-acre multi-grazing rotational ranch is a little bit more, you kind of have to know what you're doing. Exactly. And this or this website is not designed for the, you know, the 15-acre and up type property. It's designed for the millions of small properties that need somebody But can't hire somebody. Yeah, you know they, they can they can do it all, but they're stuck at home. Three sixty five. You mean and, what it makes me think of is like Brad Davies, right? Blue Valley Prepper we had on about quail. He's mm -hmm. he's got a rack of quail in his garage. He's got uh, a, a set of rabbit hutches in his backyard. He lives on a tenth of an acre, right in the middle of the suburbs. Now, that kind of person even compared to me, is never going to hire an intern. This is a home, uh, urban homesteader. Well, his rabbits will die just as fast if they're not fed as my ducks will, and he needs someone to take care of that type of thing as well. Yeah, and he can't hire out. He can't go to the uh, Farm and Labor Bureau and get <laughs> seasonal work. No. That's completely out of the, the realm of possibilities. So he needs, if he wants to travel, he needs to either have somebody who he full-time hires or be able to have a contract, uh, a temp worker who is tries to embody the same vision that he does on a moral level and yes. can follow directions. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's a security aspect, too. Like le Even if I had everything automated, mm -hmm. I'm not leaving my property for a week and a half completely unlooked after. 
I got good neighbors and all, but I mean, I have a lot of stuff here. You know, there's a lot of things that could be stolen or damaged. Hell, somebody could come steal my animals. I mean, I know people don't think that happens, but it does. I mean, there was a oh, kid, yeah. the kid, a kid that lived near us in Hot Springs that had um, some chickens, and somebody stole his chickens. Well, these were like chickens that were worth like thousands of dollars because they were really high-end show chicken breeding stock for like the, you know, he sold chickens to the kids that did the 4-H chickens, right? So he was a breeder for that type of thing. And, you know, from what we understand, the people that stole it don't know what they, they just know they stole chickens. They they have no idea what they've stolen. Oh, so yeah. that kind of stuff happens. So there's a security aspect as well. You know, if I have a person with good reviews, with a track record, you know, follow directions that I know is not going to be smoking dope in, in, in my, you know, in my, my bathtub when I get home. Also, just being there to make sure that somebody doesn't, you know, steal my stuff. I mean, there's there's a lot right. of value to that. And homesteaders, we have a lot of stuff that would be easily stolen if no one was around because we have sheds and we have tools and we, it, we, it's more than just the average, you know, you know, Ned Flanders garage. It's 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 right. it's a lot of stuff distributed on the property because it doesn't make sense for me to keep my shovels in my house. Or in my garage. It makes, you know, to keep them out in the tool shed out back where they actually get used. And, you know, homesteaders, you know, we work our asses off and sometimes we're tired. So we'll have <laughs> stacked up against the side of the chicken coop or whatever. And and just having somebody around to make sure that stuff doesn't walk is, you know, if, if I pay somebody 50 bucks a day, 100 bucks a day, uh, and they're there for five days and they cost me 250 to $500, let's say something like that. Uh, to basically sit around, eat my food, and take care of my animals, um, it's a win-win because they get to chill, they get to learn, and it would take one person coming into my garage in 10 minutes to walk out with more than that in value that I would right. then have to replace if no one was here to keep an eye on things. And you bring up a great point. One of the things that I'm going to need to work on significantly is liability. Uh, the Standard answer that I'm going with right now is that every property owner has to have a meeting, a face-to-face -face meeting with any contractor that they think about bringing onto their property. Yeah. Just so that you can at least see the person and try to get your own personal feel for are they good, are they not good. And I'm, I'm coming from the, the idea of a new sign-up. You know, yeah, you need being. to definitely talk to a lawyer and figure out how to protect your ass in this. Yeah. But one <laughs> of the things that you could do is, you know, I know you, you have plans to basically have like, so if I set up as I'm going to be a, a contractor, I have like a page and you can see a picture of me, my past works, my reviews, whatever, my information I put in about myself. Well, what you could have there is a, a way where people can click and allow for a link that shows that they've, they've had a criminal background check. And most state police departments will do one for you at your own request for between 30 and 50 bucks. True. So yep. you could just say, you know. Verified. Yeah. Or criminal checked. Yeah. Or you can see at least the last time it was checked. And if a person doesn't do it, well, they don't do it. But then they have a, a lack of advantage over another contractor that did. Because I'm obviously going to be like, well, I, 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 you know, at least I know that person's not a child rapist. Ooh, you know. Jack, Jack, are you talking about like free market markers yeah. of value yeah exactly like so wow. <laughs> you know and i mean you could have that done and yeah the state's doing it but you're choosing to have it done 
uh, and you're making it available for review because you want to, but you don't have to. And it, it, to me, that's no different than, let's say, if I'm on a Renacoder as a coder, and uh, I, I put down that I have some kind of certification in Ruby on Rails, mm-hmm. and I'm competing against somebody else that has done a lot of projects with Ruby on Rails but doesn't have that certification, then it's up to the person hiring one of us or the other of us how much they value that certification. Exactly. And, and, and I think you're going to have to make it where you have zero liability in this. Like, you have to take the Craigslist approach. Like, assume everybody's a dirtbag. Verify for yourself. Um, because otherwise, the first time somebody, you know... Oh, yeah. No, I don't, I don't want a first simple, time. Like, plugs a freezer by accident and, you know, $10,000 worth of meat is lost. And they're going to want to see you. So you're going to have to. Yeah. We we won't go any deeper into that because we're about long enough into this to wrap up today. But um, you you definitely need to have before you go live with this site a conversation with an attorney. So if there's an That's, attorney out there that would maybe want to do a little bit of this just to help a guy get started and give him some cursory ideas, you know, get in touch with with uh, with Ryan. Um, I have a kind of a, a a final question for you because you also have a blog that people can kind of check out where you do kind of your intellectual musings. Yes, I do. Um, it's bradleysci.com. Uh, that's my last name and then S-C-I. Uh, so it's bradleysci.com. And I'm trying to build that up as a daily blog where I just have, like you said, my musings. And every day has its own little theme. And that's where you can find out all about me. If you want to if you don't do regular web pages, you only do Twitter, then I'm also at, at Bradley Sy. So Cool. I'll make sure that's all in the show notes. And for people that are interested in what you're doing with FarmSub, since the site's not operational yet, would you like them to maybe just email you and you kind of keep a list of people that want to know about this when the site goes live? Yeah. Email me again at that ryan at bradleysy.com. And that will, I'll forward those into the farm subs email. Okay. Right now I am still building the site up. I'm looking for a person who knows about law to help out with the liability aspect of it. And thank you, Jack, for allowing me the opportunity to come onto your property, get to play with the ducks and take care of all of your day-to-day ritual items and really get a good feel for how it would be to live that kind of a life you know the the life of a spearco <laughs> yeah yeah i really appreciated it Thank well you and very i think much. before you go to like the other thing is you probably wouldn't mind hearing from somebody that might be able to help technology wise with the site yeah i am i'm building it off of wordpress right now and i've got a couple of ideas on what themes and plugins to use but building a marketplace on WordPress seems like it's got its own challenges since it's primarily a blogging type template. It's probably the platform to do it with. We're building quite a few things right now, and we're using WordPress for most of them. And everything we've done custom has been a disaster. And everything mm-hmm. we've used WordPress for, there's always something that does what you want. It's a matter of getting somebody that knows how to integrate it and make it flow right. So if you're a WordPress group guru, and I bet you, because you're in here in startup mode here, and, you, you know, I didn't see Warbucks as your last name. If you find somebody that want to do maybe some kind of a partnership type of agreement where you guys have some kind of a rev share or something like that, 
uh, and wants to actually believe in this thing and, and, and get behind it, that, that might be really applicable to you too. Absolutely. Yep. I'm, I'm looking for partners and anybody who is interested from the financial to the permacultural, feel free to hit me up. That same email or the contact details that we've already listed and should be in the show notes. It will be in the show notes and I'll make sure I spell your email out so nobody can scrape it with a scraper. Uh, I'm sure you get enough spam already just like I do. Anyway, Ryan, I really appreciate you being with us here today. Well, thank you very much, Jack. I've really appreciated it and look forward to coming back anytime that you guys need another duck sitter. We'll do it, man. With that, this has been Jack Spierker today along with Ryan Bradley helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.